Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn. And if you haven't already, church, please uh, meet me, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, as was just read, will be our primary text. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to give you sort of a heads up, a preview, if you will. The next two months, so January and February, we're going to be in the book of Song of Songs, which you are, if you are unfamiliar, that's five poems uh, about two people falling in love and essentially discovering, understanding their sexuality, sex itself, their understanding of gender, their understanding of what marriage looks like. So it's going to be a really easy two months. It should be not a problem at all. Zero challenging uh, passages and ideas for us to tackle. Um, I, I want to give you that heads up because for many of us, we have some really deep wounds as it relates to our own sexual story, our own experience with sex, our, the, the way that we were discipled or not discipled by the church as it relates to our sexuality, as it relates to marriage, romance, dating, what, and, and so on. And so I, I want to let you know that we're going to be exploring that for two months so that perhaps you can prepare that you can pray, that you can even like search out your spirit. Like for some of us hearing that right away, there's something that goes on in our soul about, great, I'm not going to be here for two months. Thank you for letting me know. Um, but we are all going to be navigating that in our groups as well. And so the reason for doing that is to not make you uncomfortable. The reason for doing that is because we are deeply confused and deeply wounded. And what Jesus came to do is he came to heal and he came to bring freedom. And in particular, as it relates to our sexuality, there's a lot of bondage and there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. And I believe Jesus has a great work for us in the next two months exploring Song of Songs um, and the journey that many of us have been on, but whether we know it or not, about some really challenging things. And so the reason we're doing that is for healing. This is not 
to shock you. This is not to say, hey, look what we can talk about. That's not it at all. It's because we will not be whole until we understand the fullness of why God has given you a body and why he has given us flesh and why he came in the flesh and all, all that that means for us. Um, and because it's a pretty weighty subject for us, but also because we expect that the Holy Spirit's going to do some great work, at the end of that two-month journey, we're going to have all of the groups canceled and just have a Wednesday worship night where we get to pray and come together and thank God for all that he has done um, through that. Because when we walk in the valley of the shadow um, or of the unknown, there is a great promise in the scriptures that says God, uh, that, that Jesus said, I'm going to be with you in that. And so we're, we're just going to go ahead and get ready to collect a bunch of stories um, for how he's going to meet us in the middle of this next series. And so um, if it's helpful for you to have a heads up, I want to let you know, and group leaders is a reminder to just text your groups that that will be happening so that depending on their story and their um, relation to such subjects, they'll be able to be as best prepared for what we're going to be talking about. With that being said, we'll uh, finish our series today, our Advent series in Matthew. Um, because it's always nice after Christmas to just have one more go at the story, right? Uh, because it usually happens uh, quickly. And except for, except for Luke, it's interesting to see that every gospel writer skips about 30 years of Jesus' life. Luke has this one uh, story that he records of 12-year-old Jesus chopping it up with some religious elites to his parents' chagrin, if you know this story. But other than that, we're zoomed from the first two years of Jesus' life to what's called his public earthly ministry. These three years of miracles, of works, of teachings, of building this leadership or discipleship team, uh, all the way up into his crucifixion. And it's the beginning of those three years where we're going to pick up the story today. So we've moved through Matthew 1 and 2, and now moving into the first and the earliest days of Jesus being about 30, 33 years old, um, beginning his official uh public or earthly ministry. But before Jesus' ministry officially starts, we get this warm-up act, a man named John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. He shows up on the scene, and he's preaching about something called repentance, and something called the kingdom of heaven. But he's not just preaching, as we'll see, he's also baptizing people in the Jordan River. So what begins to take place is quite a scene, that a number of people are coming out to this remote spot on the Jordan River for the first, after these first few decades of Jesus' life. They're gathering around this dude, he's got a strange diet, he's made his own clothes, right? And they're all confessing their sins to him. So let's just call this what it is, or at least what it feels. This feels a lot like a cult. This feels like if your friend was going to see this dude in camel's hair, he's like eating bugs, you're like, maybe, maybe don't drink anything when you're there. Maybe just stay away. Um, that's not a good idea. And yet, through all of these oddities, through all of the things that uh, we see in John's personage and his message, I think we begin to catch this glimpse of the brilliance of Jesus' ministry, of the brilliance of who it is that he came to seek and to save and to gather to himself. You see, the Son of God, who became a baby, heralded by angels, worshipped by wise men, and hated by kings, came with a purpose. He came with a purpose. He came to be with us. And what's more, he came to do something among us. He came to usher in something. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what Jesus came to do, namely what he came to do before his death. Because his ministry, his words, his works, all of these things that fill these three years are, but between his birth and his death, death in particular, give us clarity about, about, what, about what we're supposed to do between our births and our deaths what our purpose is, what our ministry is, as it were. And ministry really is just a baptized word for purpose or vocation or calling. 
So through this passage, we'll see three things about Jesus' ministry, and it's how I'd like to organize our time together. First, we'll look at a moral renewal. We'll look at a cosmic rule and a beloved son. A moral renewal, a cosmic rule, and a beloved son. It's to that end I want to be available to God's Spirit, so let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, uh, left to ourselves, these uh, next words that we're going to read from your word, it's just going to feel like things that we got to go do to impress you. Um, and yet by your spirit, there's life in these pages. There's not obligation, there's joy and freedom. There's not fear, there's love. And so, Father, would you strip away our preconceived notions of what it is to follow the God of the Bible so that we might actually hear your voice, see the person and work of your Son who leads us, who loves us, who heals us and restores us. Father, we are a needy people. We've got hurt and pain we don't even know about. We can't name, we can't voice, and yet we say along with your disciples, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. And so would you speak to us? You're so good to speak to us and help us to listen and respond in faithfulness and joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are a few things that emerge uh, from John's words, his actions here in this scene that give us clarity, again, about Jesus' ministry. And the first thing we see that John is talking about is repentance. He's preaching about repentance. Look again at verse 1 with me, on into verse 3. Matthew records that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who had spoken, Matthew says, of, by the prophet Isaiah, what when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make his path straight. So John is preaching about repentance. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with that word. But if you didn't grow up in the church, you may not be. And even if you are familiar with it, the question really is, what in the world is repentance? What are we actually talking about? Well, Professor Craig Bromberg, who was actually my seminary professor, my Greek professor, he explains um, that repentance is Greek, in Greek, traditionally implied a change of mind or attitude. But under Old Testament influence, he goes on to say, it took on the sense of change of action as well. So repentance then, biblically speaking, within the consciousness of God's people, repentance is this holistic transformation. It's a change in what you think. It's a change in your disposition. It's a change in your behavior. And in order to fully understand, I think, what John is getting at, what he's talking about, I think it would be important to pull apart a lot of different ideas and words that often get conflated as it relates to repentance so that we can understand in our own spiritual imaginations what it is that we're called to here by John and subsequently by Jesus and his disciples. And we'll see they'll sort of build on each other. So let's pull a few things apart. First, we see that the Bible talks about sorrow, sorrow over sin. Not only is there an entire book committed to understanding what it is to be sorrowful over sin, it's called Lamentations. Many of us learn to avoid that book like the plague, right, growing up in a modern American church. But that whole book teaches us about lament. But also the apostle James instructs his readers to be wretched and mourn and weep over their sin. This is at the heart and really at the start of what godly transformation looks like, how it begins. We should be grieved by our sin in the same way that God is grieved over our sin. And we don't really learn this, do we? We learn to forgive and forget and to sort of move on as opposed to sitting in it. I do not like sitting in things. 
My wife will tell you whenever there is tension, I'm like, let's fix this right now. Don't sit in it, no space. We have to figure this out right now. I don't want to lament. I don't want to be sorrowful. I don't want to enter in. In fact, I think through lament, what we learn to do and what really is the challenge is we learn to share God's heart. We learn to feel the way that he feels about our sin, and that can be scary. But from our grief, when we learn to do that, the Bible teaches us to then forgive. And forgiveness is not merely the, me- the feeling of sorrow. Rather, as Yale professor Miroslav Wolf explains, that to forgive means to release the condemned wrongdoer, not just from punishment, but from guilt. See, in our minds, he says, that we are to learn to detach the doer from the deed. Do you know how we know we haven't forgiven someone? Is we keep seeing them through the thing they did to us. That's the person who. In other words, what? We haven't detached the doer from the deed. What they did is who they are. What they did is who they are. And so forgiveness is pulling those things apart, saying what they did was wrong. But who they are is different from what they have done. See, we resist then, we learn in forgiveness to resist the impulse to see and to think of someone through the lens of their sin just the same way that God has not done that anymore. That the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus that we're to learn to be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, through forgiveness, what we're doing is we're learning to see, to imagine, to share God's mind, to see the way he sees, to think the way that he thinks. And then from sorrow, remember we began with sorrow, lamenting over our sin, learning to forgive, to detach the doer from the deed. Then we can move on to repentance. To be sure, sometimes the fullness of forgiveness doesn't happen until some sort of change or process of repentance has begun. Sometimes it happens all at once. Sometimes sorrow and forgiveness and repentance all sort of come in the same moment, and other times they build on one another. Nevertheless, repentance can only come truly when our heart and our mind have begun to be reformed into the character of God, begun to be transformed into the renewal of our minds. This is what leads to a true change in behavior. See, parents know kids can change their behavior real quick. You hold up a consequence, it is amazing. You, you threaten to take away video games, they're all of a sudden the holy of holies. You know what I mean? Like they will do whatever you want, but has their heart really changed? No. It hasn't. It has. It has definitely, definitely not. You see, true repentance doesn't come without restructuring the soul. True repentance does not come without that soul being transformed. That's what John is getting at when he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elites who would have been gathering, watching all of these people gather, watching all these people come to the Jordan River. The, John the Baptist turns to them. Look at verse 8, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He sort of turns to them as he's preaching about repentance. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. In other words, it doesn't make you special. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's he saying? Is that their religious acts were just that, an act. It was an act. It wasn't real. It wasn't substantive. They were not keeping with repentance. They were keeping up appearances. See, through repentance, what happens? While through, through sorrow, we learn to feel with God's heart, and through forgiveness, we learn to share God's mind. Well, in repentance, we learn to live underneath God's power, to live in the power of a transformed heart and soul, which we cannot do on our own, which our actions alone cannot transform. So this is the moral renewal of Jesus' ministry. 
which John the Baptist begins to lay out in his preaching. He's calling for repentance. Repentance is the way, in John's words, or rather in Isaiah's words that are quoted here in Matthew 3, that we prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Through repentance. Sin makes things crooked and disorders them, and repentance gets our hearts back into aligning our whole being with the nature and character of God. See, learning to feel with God's heart, seeing with God's mind, and live with God's power. So a good question for us when we're asking, perhaps even ourselves, what do I need to repent of? Is not what do I feel, but what does God's heart feel? Not what do I see, but how does God think? How does God see this? Not, not simply what can I do? What, what, is, what is something that I am capable of? But what is it that I can do underneath the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, all of a sudden, all kinds of other things get revealed in us when we begin to think this way. But this leads to another aspect of John's warm-up act, if you will, of preparing uh, the way for Jesus' ministry. See, Jesus, or rather John, didn't just come preaching repentance, but performing baptisms. In an ancient Jewish world, ceremonial cleansing was a common practice, but John is doing something different here. Look at verse 4 through 6. So if you moved to 8, back up to verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a uh, leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing, a river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now let's not miss this. There was a long lineage, a long heritage, uh, an Old Testament water purification practices, but it was always about ritual purification. It was never about forgiveness of sins and guilt. It wasn't about washing you morally clean. And so what John is saying here is that baptism is no longer a routine. Being washed in this water is not for show. It's not for ritual purification. Rather, it's a mark of moral renewal. Now, where does this lead us? Because for many of us, the substance of the Christian life is this, moral renewal. Be better. Be more whole. Be more like Christ. Are you repenting? Are you baptized? Are you personally obeying more and more? So many of us gauge the goodness of our week, and perhaps even our whole life, based on conformity to God's righteousness. Am I more like God or less like him? Perhaps you're looking back in 2023 just going, am I more like him or less like him? And then therefore, it's either good or bad, depending on your conclusions. Thinking like his mind, feeling like his heart, living under his power. In fact, this is essentially the practice of conservative churches and denominations. They are built and even structured around practices of personal moral renewal as the litmus test of faithfulness, of genuine fruitfulness, and of divine favor. In these contexts, the purpose of Jesus' ministry is summarized in C.S. Lewis' words when he imagined that the purpose of ministry is to make little Christs. Are we making little Christs? Are people looking more like Jesus? In other words, church, what are we talking about? We're talking about holiness. We're talking about holiness. Living with moral conformity to God's character. Holiness is a very good thing. But let's simply ask, doesn't it seem like there is more to Jesus' ministry than personal moral renewal? See, upon further consideration, a second aspect of Jesus' ministry emerges, which I think not, it does not disregard holiness, but actually enhances, it enriches the meaning of our repentance and of our baptism to our moral renewal, if you will. Look again at verse 2. John says, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, while repentance and baptism are our personal responses, this idea of the kingdom seems to be immediately conveying something corporate or communal, right? 
So what's the kingdom of heaven? This is another one of those words that we toss around and really define ourselves for what this means based on our tradition or our own perspective or experience. Well, first we should say that there is no reason to believe that there is a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. We find both of these throughout the New Testament, and they are likely interchangeable. They likely mean the same thing. Why can we say that? Well, in Jewish consciousness, the name of God was so precious, so ineffable, if you will, that they regularly submitted God with heaven so as not to possibly say his name too casually. So instead of saying God, they said heaven frequently. So saying the kingdom of heaven is like saying the kingdom of God. So we're talking about the same thing, whether we're talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Having said that, John immediately gives us a clue about the nature of this kingdom by telling the crowd what? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds pretty epic, right? It's at hand. It's here. Look at look again at verse two. Did you see it? Repent, for the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this idea conveys that the kingdom has already arrived, at least arrived at least in some measure, specifically through the arrival of the Messiah or the King. Uh, Professor Blomberg again notes that the kingdom depicts the er eruption of God's power into history in a new and dramatic way with the advent of Messiah Jesus. In other words, the king is here, and he's brought his kingdom with him. The king is here, and he's brought his kingdom with him. That means this isn't just a communal or corporate project or reality. The kingdom of heaven is a cosmic reality that is invading this world. And John isn't the only one who proclaims this. Jesus later says the exact same thing in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew 5, he instructs his disciples to go out all over the region and do what? preach repentance and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand. But what's this all mean? Well, it's important to, I think, get in the minds, if you will, of the first century readers, the first century listeners to John's preaching and Jesus' arrival in order to understand and receive the kingdom appropriately, and to understand what it is that he is talking about, and perhaps more importantly, to understand what he's not talking about. To understand what he is talking about and what he's not talking about. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests that Jesus and this first century Jewish world would have believed two things that would have informed their reception and the inauguration of this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Wright explains in his brilliant book that was incredibly uh, formative for me, young in my ministry career, The Challenge of Jesus, that those two beliefs were, one, that God's choice of Israel to be the means of saving the world, and two, God's bringing Israel's history to its moment of climax through which justice and mercy would embrace not only Israel but the entire world. They would believe, they rather they believed that God was going to save the world through Israel, and they believed that this salvation would be exacted through a climactic event bringing lasting love and truth and healing to the whole of creation, namely through the coming Messiah. So, when these crowds are coming to the Jordan, they're not just like, dude, this is weird, let's go see what's going on. They are seeing their hopes, their beliefs, their, their fundamental expectations being realized in the preaching of John. Are you with me? They're, they're not just enamored by the spectacle. They're drawn in because of what they believe, and therefore what they hear is moving within the narrative that they have been waiting to complete they follow all over Judea. They begin to follow Jesus, and they're hearing and believing that God is doing what? He's keeping his word, that he is going to save the world through Israel, and he's going to save that world through the Messiah. So God's chosen people, Israel, being used by God to welcome the Messiah who would establish love, truth, justice, and mercy on earth, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus taught them to pray that. 
pray, pray that the kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because this is my ministry. Jesus is like, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm here to do. In fact, the very first sermon that Jesus preached, his uh, foundational text, his primary text was Isaiah chapter 61, which is quoted in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, through the spirit, the kingdom of heaven, and thus all of God's promises were now being realized in Christ because he is the Messiah. See, the kingdom is ushering in of good news, of liberty, of divine favor. And so John doesn't just tell us to feel and see and act rightly in accordance with God's moral renewal. He talks about power and authority. In other words, this isn't just about what's happening in your soul. This is about what's happening everywhere. This is about what's happening in the cosmos. This is what's happening just as much on Jupiter as it is in Logan Square. Are you with me? That blows the mind. But here's what John says. Matthew 3, verse 11 now. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff, the chaff rather, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Church in the square, the kingdom of heaven is not simply about your righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is not simply about your holiness. It's about power. It's about the spirit and it's about fire. It's not simply about personal moral renewal through repentance. It's about God's cosmic rule and reign. It's about holiness and it's about justice. See, while many people, and again, in those conservative contexts, often focus on personal moral renewal of Jesus' ministry, others of us focus on his cosmic rule. In other words, instead of centering our lives on holy living, we highlight the plight of the poor and the marginalized, working for the goodness and the liberation and the holistic renewal of all things. It's not a private righteousness, but a social redemption that we're after. That's what we see in more progressive or liberal churches and communities. There's an emphasis on things like taking care of the planet, social justice, gender equality, and so on. This is why theologian James Cone writes that the kingdom, or rather the gospel of the kingdom, is an eminent reality, a powerful liberating presence among the poor right now in their midst, building them up where they are torn down and propping them up uh, on every leaning side, the gospel, he says, is found wherever poor people struggle from, for justice, fighting for their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can see what I think Jesus' ministry exposes and what I'm trying to make plain is that one of the great tragedies of the modern Western Christian church is that we have divided what Jesus inaugurated as one that we have divided what Jesus has brought in unity. In other words, we've chosen a kingdom of righteousness or a kingdom of power. We've chosen a life of holiness or a life of justice, a baptism of water or a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire, a moral renewal or a cosmic rule. I want to caution us here. God help us. See, I think if you've been tracking with us as a church for very long, then you know there's some people in this bunch who are all about moral renewal. There's other people in this community who are about this cosmic 
rule. Some who have this concept of life that is centered on one thing and another on another and another group on another. And we're in group together. That's hard. Some of you married each other. That's even harder. You're in group together. You're married together. You're building a life together. We're in church together. And so if we're not careful, our proclivities will lead to judgment and division rather than unity and diversity. Am I preaching to you yet? This is so easy. It's so easy to do and to believe even that we're doing what Jesus told us to do. Whenever we stand on that kind of principle, we need to stay curious and not judgmental. So we all think that ultimately we've got it right. And really, we've got it half right. See, while holiness folks look down on justice folks for not preaching certain doctrines and preaching them with the same fervor that they would the atonement, the death of Christ, justice-minded Christians easily despise holiness believers for not loving their neighbors better, right? You may have right now an impulse that's like, I, I, I don't know where, where I fall, but I got angry when you said that. Do you know that the scriptures call us to both things? Are you with me? See, in, in each other, we must see the other half of the kingdom of which we are prone to miss. Can you imagine if you believe that your sister who got on your nerves in your group actually understood something about the kingdom you routinely and were reared and discipled to neglect? What if the reason that your brother gets on your nerves is because he keeps saying something that you don't want to trust and believe came from the same Jesus that you believe that you're following? Can you imagine if we looked at the other, the one who was frustrating, the one who we felt was so off and believed actually they see something in the gospel that I miss? I wonder if they see something in the kingdom that I miss. I wonder if they see something in God himself that I am neglecting. Can you even imagine what that community would look like? When we don't draw lines in the sand or circles that say, here's where I stand and you've got to come in or out, but actually to remain curious and go, this kingdom is cosmic and I might be wrong about a bunch of stuff. And I think you have a lot to teach me. See, after all, the message is not simply repent, is it? Nor is it the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's both. Our moral renewal is the way that Jesus' cosmic rule begins to take hold of the world. So what's that look like? What's it look like to embrace both? Well, first, let's understand to divide Jesus' kingdom message is to divide Jesus. In other words, if we've missed his message, we've missed him. We haven't seen him. You see, conservative Christians often look at Jesus as their teacher. That he builds our character. He teaches us lessons through parables and wisdom. Progressive Christians, however, look at Jesus as healer, restoring communities through building up wounds, feeding the hungry, and speaking up for the voiceless. We both see him as king. But the way we see him exact his kingship, if you will, informs our view of his kingdom. And through Matthew's retelling of the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that Jesus is both teacher and our healer. Because first and foremost, church, he's someone else. First and foremost. Watch as Jesus enters Matthew's narrative, because he hasn't even shown up yet. We've just been talking about him. Look at Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to baptize you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Okay, so the long-awaited Messiah comes to be baptized, just like everyone else. This is fantastic. Why? Because he's our teacher, and he practices what he preaches. He has integrity. Yet John is dumbfounded by this. He thinks, as all of us probably would have, um, Jesus is better than you, John. <laughs> so you probably shouldn't do this at all, that Jesus, you should baptize John after all. John knows that Jesus is greater, more holy, more powerful than him. In other words, what does John know? Jesus is the healer, not me. You see, this narrative shows us that Jesus is both teacher and healer. However, baptism isn't about some moral ranking. Jesus makes this clear. You see, Jesus isn't being baptized by John because he thinks he's inferior to John. Jesus says for himself, Jesus is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And when he does, when he fulfills all righteousness, heaven or the kingdom of heaven shows up on earth. Watch this, church. Look at verse 16. Matthew goes on. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is one of the most precious scenes we find anywhere in Scripture. It's a tender, yet powerful moment. And... Much could be said. Much could be said about the full presence of the Trinity. We see God the Father speaking. We see God the Son being baptized. We see God the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Much could be said about the nature of baptism, and many have, about its practices, its mode, its meaning, and how to practice it today, right? Much could be said about much, but let's focus on the simple, singular aspect of this voice from heaven. It's the Heavenly Father. The Father speaks from heaven from the place where his word, his will, his glory, power are without question and no resistance. He's speaking from the place where the kingdom of heaven is not coming. He's speaking from the place where the kingdom of heaven persists like light. And he says, this voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, this may seem like a stupid question, but this is one of my spiritual gifts to ask such dumb things. But why does he say that? Why is the father pleased with his son? And why is he saying this now? Why is he saying at Jesus' baptism, at the start of his ministry? After all, let's just think about this. The kingdom has arrived, but it's not yet fully expressed. Jesus is actually just beginning his ministry. He hasn't raised the dead. He hasn't given sight to the blind. He hasn't fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. He hasn't graduated. He hasn't written any books. He hasn't hosted a podcast, right? He hasn't taken public office. Remember, except for Luke's gospel, there is one story between two-year-old Jesus and 33-year-old Jesus, and it's of him talking to some old people about the things of God and running away from his parents. There's not a lot in there that you would go, that's my guy. That's my guy. They skipped so many decades. In other words, what are we saying? All Jesus has done so far is show up. And that, that is precisely, I think, why the Father speaks here and now. You see, the love of the Father comes before the ministry. The love of the Father comes 
before the cross. And we know this and should be unsurprised by this because the love of the Father came before creation. You see, the Father's love is unconditional for the Son because the Father's love precedes all conditions. His love precedes his ministry. It precedes the cross. It precedes creation. This is what John 17, 24, Jesus is even saying, Father, I can't wait to get back to the presence of your love, the love that I enjoyed before the foundation of the world. This tells us so much about the Father's love, doesn't it? This tells us so much about Jesus himself, who he is. This also tells us a lot about the kingdom, the kind of kingdom that we often seek to divide that Jesus calls to be one. See, my, my brothers and sisters, my suspicion is that you're really tired. Just throwing it out there. One of the reasons is because of what we have done to the king, what we do to his kingdom. See, Jesus is our teacher and our healer because long before he was either of those things, long before he was either of those things, he was the beloved son. That, that, this, is, this is really fundamental. This means that whatever he teaches you, he teaches as a beloved son. However he heals you, he heals you as a beloved son. He has always been the beloved son. He has not always been teacher. He has not always been healer. Why? Because we weren't always. So there was no one to teach. There was no one to heal. There was no sin. There was no brokenness. There was no ignorance. And so something fundamentally that Jesus has been forever is the beloved son. Therefore, out of everything he does, he does it as a beloved son. And it's when we see him as the beloved son, when we see his ministry through this lens, we'll learn to see ourselves too as dearly loved children. See, because though we were made for God's family, it's our moral impurity, it's our cosmic negligence that created distance with our Father. See, our hearts are sick with sin. Our world is broken by death. Yet this beloved son was born of a woman and died on a cross. And in doing so, Jesus made a way for our hearts to be renewed and for the cosmos to be healed. And between his birth and his death, his ministry makes all of this plain. And this is why I think we're tired. Because between our birth and our death, we make it about something else. It's exhausting. See, I want to suggest to you that Jesus' entire ministry is anchored in the reality that he is loved by his Father. Because it happens before his ministry. Can you imagine if everything you did was coming from anchored in the fact that you were a loved daughter, that you were a loved son? It would transform everything. Because when Jesus is merely your teacher, you can't rest, can you? Why? Because there's always something new to learn. There's always another lesson. In fact, there's the same lesson to learn literally all the time. It feels like that, right? We joke all the time. Every Sunday, we teach the same message. It just sounds a little different from a different passage. It's the same thing. There's always something new to learn when Jesus is merely our teacher. And when Jesus is just your healer, you can't rest either. Why? There's always more work to be done. There's always more wounds to bind up. There is always more justice to be achieved. This is why we're tired. We've divided the kingdom and we've divided the king. See, but when Jesus is the beloved son, first, foremost, and forever, we can rest because the intimacy, the favor, the love which he enjoyed forever with his father, he extends to us with the same unconditional preceding love by which he received it. In other words, the Father loves you before you are useful to him. The Father loves you before you learn all his lessons. The Father loves you before you make the world a better place. 
before you make sure everything and everyone knows exactly the truth or is fed or is filled or is no longer hungry, is no longer cold, right? Those are all brilliant and beautiful things, but he loves you already. You need not do anything to earn his affection because Jesus needed to do nothing to earn his affection. See, the voice of heaven now, church, speaks over you. I wonder if you believe it. This is my beloved daughter. With her, I'm really pleased. Can you believe that? If he's just your teacher, it's like, I'll be pleased if you get this lesson, right? If he's just your healer, I'll, I'll believe this once I'm healed. But if he's your father, it's true right now. This is my beloved son with whom I'm really pleased and I love. Before creation, before the cross, you are loved. When we rest in this love like children, Jesus says that's the kingdom of heaven. We learn to seek his kingdom out of joy, not obligation. We learn to rest. When we learn to rest, we learn to seek righteousness out of love and not fear. Perhaps this is why Jesus would soon tell his disciples that because the heavenly father loves and takes care of them, they can live a life freed from anxiety. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? He goes on to say later in that passage, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, both, and all these things will be added to you. Everything you're worried about will be made whole when we center ourselves on his affection. See, knowing through the beloved son that the father is pleased with us enables us to rightly see Jesus as our teacher and our healer. It enables us to repent and embrace the coming kingdom, fulfilling the ache that creation is longing to be made new. So my brother and my sister, would you rest today? Would you rest this year knowing that the beloved son loves you, that the father loves you, that you are his beloved children with whom he is well pleased? Would you pray with me? Father, There's like a galaxy of meaning just even in that name that we get to call you. That you're the one who rules and reigns over all things and yet you are the one who is closer than a brother, than a friend. You even fill your people with your spirit. God left to ourselves, we don't believe that. It's too good. We're constantly drawn back to the fact that we've got to learn the lessons and we've got to heal the world before you would speak such favor over us. So would you transform our souls? Would you restructure our hearts to be grounded in this grace, to be grounded in this truth, to rest? I pray, Father, for my brothers and my sisters that they would rest and that from that disposition of being beloved, that they would become more like Christ and that we would see your kingdom come and your will be done in Chicago as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.